This is the Training Talks podcast with your host Richard Kelly of RK Fitness and Lawrence Davis of LXD Fitness. So before I got here, I was listening to a podcast where a strength and conditioning coach and a powerlifting coach were having a conversation about training. What was really interesting about this was they were breaking down the difference between motor control and strength for athletes. So bear with me because this becomes relevant in a minute. So when they were talking about um, training basketball players in particular, one of the areas that uh, strength and conditioning coaches often get tied into is they look to optimize maximum strength with their basketball players as a metric. So, you know, um, so there's a famous YouTube clip of LeBron James squatting and he does like a quarter squat and everyone sort of laughs about it and says, you know, that's not a squat. But this strength and conditioning coach that's talking about athletes explains that there's certain reasons why he might be doing that because his jump shot might require him only to to go to that depth so it might be something that's specifically done in season with him and therefore because of the point at which this video is shot because no one knows when it's shot it might well be that's just what element of training he's working on at that given time hold i know right i don't know how long i can hold oh okay so from this the guys then start talking about the impact of motor control so the conversation goes on to basically like a, a dunk, right? So they start explaining that what you'd typically do in your run-up is you'd end up bounding and then you go into a jump, two feet, and then to dunk. So, so what they explain is the calf development in relation to the quad development, if the calves are smaller than the quads, that would indicate that when they're jumping, they're overloading the hip matrix for the jump and not moving correctly through the ankles. So in terms of motor control, what they need to do is work on the ankles at a sub-maximal level. So by working the joint sub-maximally, they give the joint the uh, breathing space to play around with the movement and reframe the movement without overloading that joint. Because basically what the strength and conditioning coach is arguing is that when they're working through that joint to do their bound action, for the listener, a bound is where you go from one foot to the other, so left to right foot or right to left foot. So when you're working through that bound action, because of the load and stresses put onto the ankle joint from landing and from jumping, it then means that the joint gets overloaded by the, the that, that stressor and therefore can't develop. So has worked, uh, so has created a movement pattern that's suboptimal because it's the only way that joint can work in that load. So by working at a sub-maximal level, it allows the ankle joint breathing space to relearn the movement pattern without overloading because the stress of the impact on the ground and the jumping and, and the moving is what effectively caused that um, movement pattern to begin in the first place. What you mean a movement pattern where they're over dominant in the quads? Yeah. Compared to the... Because the, the, the quad dominant aspect is a compensation for the lack of strength in their calves. Now, I like what the guy's saying. However, going back to the LeBron James thing the reason why he would squat at that level regardless of the time of year is because there was a lot of um, research done over the last five or six years or maybe even a bit longer regarding you know whether it whether an athlete needed to squat all the way down yeah I've seen like this what, what, at what point is it diminishing return and one of the things they said is that they came to the point where there's this athletic position which is the quarter squat position where most things most sports that's the deepest they ever have to go yeah 
So for LeBron James, maybe off season you do something where you go slightly deeper because you know at some point when you're in a strength phase before the season, or for any sport, the key thing is to get as much muscle mass as possible. So going to a lower depth would work. Yeah. Generally, you'd want to go deeper because you know in your mind you think you'd get more strength out of that. Yeah. However, staying in a quarter squat would just be the smartest thing to do. Because you don't need to go lower than that. You don't need to really worry about them being in a strong position or having to be in a strong position lower than that position. And when you relate that into like a normal jump, you realise that position is extremely quad dominant. Yeah, because that's where your drive point is. So you, you don't drive from a, for a jump from lower than that because you don't have the time. And also, in that position, you won't use your cast in the same way. They can't be the dominant mover in that position. No. So it makes sense for him to work the calf submaximally, but the positions where that would be most effective wouldn't even relate back to the squat, sorry, to the jump for a basketball player. It would be the bounding and like the quick movement side to side where the calf would have to do things quickly and it'd be mainly all calf. But in a yeah. jump like that, where you're actually going to the athletic position and coming out, quads would always have to be the big one. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think, and what we don't know, is when he says the proportion of quad to calf, we don't know what that proportion is. Yeah, because they probably are numbers. If, if he's anything like us, as a strength and conditioning coach, he's got percentages. Oh, he sounds like he's, he's, he's more than us. Yeah. Because at the beginning of their conversation, they were discussing how he has worked out a system for working out which watermelons are the best ones in the shop by the skin texture on the outside and the striping. I like this guy. Yeah. I will send you this podcast because I think I think this guy makes a lot of sense. But I don't know how he does this, but he's using bands to lessen the load through their uh, jump action. If they're still landing, I don't understand how the bands would help. I think the band is the, the contractile element when you push off. So I think it's enabling yeah but it wouldn't it wouldn't reduce it it would increase it because you've increased the resistance not if you used it the other way and you, you were on the band pressing up because then the band would assist wait 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 when you say on the band pressing up they didn't go into details in the podcast in my opinion unless somehow you're taking out the landing you're not lessening the forces of jumping he said he uses bands for this as to how he uses the bands I don't know that's All a mystery right, cool. that's probably where he earns his money alright so he's right. not giving that away. However, it's interesting because... It's anti-gravity room. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because I then thought about extrapolating this out. If you take someone who's overweight and they've decided that they're going to use running as their method to lose weight, yep. the impact we know on their joints from the load in terms of this new stimulus for running plus their extra weight is quite tough. So they pick up bad movements and bad habits and increase their likelihood of injury. We both know this. And if you're listening and you don't know this and you're doing this... You don't know. Yeah. So, when, we're, when I'm looking at this, uh, this explanation about uh, calf and ankle and uh, quad in terms of ratios, proportions, in terms of strength, I'm starting to think about the fact that how many people do, do we come across who've had a background where they've done a lot of running and they've got issues and problems in their legs. They've got stiffness and tightness. They've got weakness. They've got they're basically one move away from being injured because the load they've taken through their running has been so extreme for one of their joints that it's overloaded. Should we be doing sub-maximal strength training with them through the legs in isolation 
you know, different parts to bring the proportions back up to help fix this issue? No. I like your thinking. However, with a normal person, you can't really talk about maximal, sub-maximal. Because literally, literally everything you do with him is sub-maximal. True. But, as you've already pointed out, it would work better unilaterally than bilaterally. Without a doubt. However, I think the biggest problem isn't trying to reduce the load. It's just the fact that people use running because it's the easy option. Whether they're overweight or not overweight, the problem that I've found is the fact that most people can't handle ground reaction force. So, for the listener, let's give it ground reaction force. We're talking about the contact force of landing. Right. So, most people think about the jump, but with a lot of sports, one in particular, basketball, the key thing you should focus on is the ground reaction force and how much load they can handle aka a good example is depth jumps where they jump from a platform yeah hit the ground and explode up what we're basically talking about is how they react to landing on the ground and then come back out of that reaction how they absorb the force yeah and apply the force on the way up so effectively that recoil element but if you take away the jumping back up it's just their body being able to absorb the force without the structure cracking. Hence, why you get the problem with a lot of people who run is it's not the fact that they they can't absorb the force, but also you don't realise with running, you're absorbing the force for a long period of time. Yeah. So you've got that consistent movement. And on top of that, like everyone who's run a certain distance will tell you, your running style every couple of K will change. Well, not only that as well... When you're when you're running outside on a you know open road environment, every step you take, the ground surface is different. So you're not just dealing with let's say five thousand repetitions, right? Where you've got to handle the force and load in the right way. You've got five thousand repetitions that are individually different. So that's why I always say to anybody who runs, you need to do strength training because you need to be able to handle additional force on your body for periods of time to help with the running yeah because and you have to be strong enough to start running because one of the um this was this was also replicated in this um podcast interestingly enough was one of the um base levels that you need is a good strength level because the higher your strength to weight ratio is the less likely you are to be injured by the run that's it. That's why, typically speaking, most runners who are really successful are really lightweight relative to their height. Yeah. Because they're effectively their bodies are not handling that much load each time they make a, a, a step. So if they're, say, you know, six foot and 60 kilos, they're, they're relatively light for their body. It's not going to have as damaging an impact as if they're 60 kilos and five foot. But ultimately, it comes down to the fact that even being lighter than most people, they have a higher strength to weight ratio. Yeah, I mean, I'm generalizing with weight, but you're right. It ultimately comes down to body fat number as well because they always typically have a relatively low body fat and a naturally decent amount of muscle on them. Yeah. And that's why when we're working with people, one of the key facets and key beginning points that we tend to end up with, and I'm sure you agree with me, is that you look at strength and you try and strengthen somebody up because it makes them more robust and less likely to have an injury. Yep, definitely.
Guys, for those who haven't rated and reviewed us, please do so. If you're able to rate and review us, then you can actually start to send us stuff, send us questions that you may have about fitness or any queries or any topics that you may want us to talk about because ultimately we're here to help you guys better understand the world of training. So today, listeners, I have Richard beside me and he's quite animated about a subject. He's given me the name of it, but other than that, I don't have a clue what he's about to explode into. Richard, you have the floor. All right. So you might well have seen the UK are trying to reduce their emissions output by 30% by 2024. Okay. Of their total emissions, 14.5% come from food. Okay. Okay. Of that 14.5%, 65%, so almost two thirds, come from beef. What about beef? It's the emissions. How are the cows creating this much CO2? It's not just CO2, it's methane, but you've also got to bear in mind the transportation of beef, of milk. Okay, cool. So it's not just the animals themselves, it's the byproducts of them and the transportation of the food that comes from them. And their feed and all the rest of it. So it's it's the entire process from effectively cow to table. Okay. 14.5% of all UK emissions yep. comes from food. 65% of that 14.5% is from cows. What the government have targeted is a 30% reduction on consumption of meat because if they can reduce meat consumption by 30%, that takes us down to just over 10% of of all emissions coming from food just by cutting down on meat. So you're effectively losing over 4.5% of emissions in the food industry. So you're with me so far? Yeah, I'm with you. I have some questions, but I'm with you. Okay, so what are your questions? It doesn't make sense, in my opinion, to target the one thing which is only like two-thirds or 14% compared to the rest of the, like, is that 86%? Yeah, it's 83 and a half percent, yeah. And aren't they, aren't they also investing in more fossil fuels? They are. They're, they're pushing some renewable energy sources. I mean, the, the, the cut they're trying to cut is across the economy. It's not just, this is the contribution from the food industry, they've decided, mm-hmm. right? So this cut would represent a four and a half percent cut from food. They're going to find the other whatever it is 23 and 25 percent from elsewhere okay right so they are looking to cut from other areas it's not specifically from food but this is what they've targeted from food however of this 65 percent which is cows yeah 41 percent is beef 20 percent is milk and four percent is manure okay okay so all of these things are beneficial economically yeah right the food industry really is targeting that those two two of those areas so the 41 percent for beef and the 20% for milk. So really, 61% is where they want to see their drop. Okay? So most of those emissions, 84% of them, are due to the uh, the feed production and delivery of feed. Okay. Okay? 20% of the emissions come from transportation. So that includes not just moving the feed to the cows, but also transporting the beef and the milk from the cows. So there's an overlap in, in there, right? So most of the emission production is methane. It's 44%. Okay, I'm going to come back to why these are weeds are relevant in a minute. Uh, CO2 production is much, much less from cows. So obviously, methane, predominantly from cows, is actually from them burping, apparently. There's an issue around what type of feed they're given. There are widespread reports now there's a new type of feed that can be given to cows, which would reduce methane production by 82%. It's a type of seaweed. So you could cut 82% of the emissions of the cows just by giving them seaweed. And you know, um, most seaweed has such a high density in vitamins and minerals, it's insane. 
so good for you if we take those numbers back in if we take that the the uk were to switch to seaweed as their feed for for the cows and you take back on that 82 percent of methane coming from cows right that's a realistic reduction okay so you remember right at the beginning we're looking for a reduction from 14.5% down to 10%. Yes, in the food production section. Yeah. So just by switching to seaweed, you would see a reduction of 3.75%. So almost the 4.5%. All you need to find after doing that is 0.75%. That's actually not bad, but it gives more validity to my theory. Which I'm going to get a cow and feed it some seaweed. I'm going to rear my own couple of my own cattle for my own meat. I don't trust these guys anymore. I think, in all fairness, you don't need to worry too much about this. I think your one cow isn't really going to cause too much of an issue to the UK emissions. If they're switching to seaweed and the seaweed is good, I can get my hands on some seaweed. Problem solved. Lawrence now has cattle. You heard it here first. (laughs) Fine. Okay. So we're taking you out of this conversation. So 35% of all UK beef is imported. Yep. Okay. So weirdly, the emissions reduction target doesn't account for imported beef doesn't account for anything imported because it's someone else's emissions problem but how does that make sense because half of the journey is in your country it's that bit does the bit in the uk does so the bit in the uk that you do you do count towards your emissions so the transportation from the airport to wherever it's going okay that counts but the bit to get it to the uk that doesn't that's the other country's problem all right right so because emission targets are based on national uh, lines right Brazil shipping beef to the UK counts as Brazil all the way up to it gets to to us. Bear this in mind when we're talking about cutting emissions because imported beef has a lower emissions number than domestic beef. Okay, so most beef that you'll get in a supermarket is British or Irish. I don't really look at that. Or go to the butchers. And you know if you go to the butchers, because our butchers is based on a farm, most likely, it's UK. Yeah, right. But there are obviously beef as, as i said 35 percent of beef is imported most of that 35 percent of beef goes into the restaurant industry i thought so the beef you're buying in restaurants is more expensive because it's flown in from foreign countries right and because of the amount of time it takes to you don't want it to spoil it's mostly flown in this is relevant because if you were to reduce the amount of imported beef that comes in and you were to shift to a domestic beef you would see a rise in emissions because you have to account for the transportation costs in the UK, the feed in the UK, right, which we've already covered. So in order to hit hit the emissions target, they actually want to keep the imported beef coming in and they want to cut domestic beef production. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing, right? Because what that means is, is less beef available in supermarkets, smaller herds, less cattle, because that actually helps us hit the emissions target. But higher prices, because you're going to have to put imported beef into the shops. Prices go up. Well, that's assuming the same level of demand. So what they're, what they're encouraging people to do is to switch to meat alternatives. So the number one meat alternative in the world is soy. I just want to say, Richard, in this space where we do our podcasting, there's certain words which are off limits. Please don't use that dirty word in a car again. Unfortunately... I have to, because I have to explain why this is such a stupidly bad plan. I don't understand how you can even say it's a meat alternative, but carry on. It's, I agree with you, it's not, right? It's, it's a completely separate thing. Soy accounts for, depending on where you get the source from, because it's coming from developing countries, right. 10 to 20% of global 
carbon dioxide emissions. Not only that, but in order to grow it, you have to use rainforest areas. You're cutting down rainforest to grow soy. And soy doesn't replace, uh, replenish the nutrients in soil. So once you've used it for soy, that's it. That ground can't be used. It has to have the nutrients put back in. This makes me angry. That's the reason why they want to shift to soy, because soy is produced outside of the UK. And that outside of the UK means it doesn't impact our emissions numbers. So switching to soy wouldn't actually benefit internationally on any environmental level. It would cause more emissions and it would cause more of an environmental impact. The only reason why we're being pushed towards soy is because it looks better for the UK in terms of their emissions contribution. But wealthy countries can afford to import because they can afford to pay the additional costs. What it means though for the lower income, poorer sections of society is they have less option to buy beef in this scenario because beef will have a higher cost per unit down the line because effectively the emissions from beef are what means there has to be an additional cost if you're following me um i followed you perfectly now let me take my time to say this without swearing this is why the whole political system is corrupt because you make one statement on one hand and say by this stage we want to cut emissions and everyone listens to it and thinks okay they really want to help the environment but ultimately no they don't want to cut emissions they just want to shift emissions to somebody else's problem and still screw the planet yeah so you know what in my mind all of these different campaigns that are coming up right now and doing all these protests all over the country even though insulate britain they irritate me because they're affecting normal people mm-hmm. you can understand what they're doing and why they're doing it because the, what the government is saying and what they're actually doing are totally different. You heard about all the plans for the fossil fuel sites around the country. Yeah. But you shouldn't be trying to create new big fossil fuel sites. You should be trying to create renewable energy sites, not fossil fuel sites. You are correct. There's, there's issues around the reliability of renewables. There's also money that's probably changed hands to ensure that fossil fuel keeps getting produced. Once again, political gain, not gain of the world. Mm-hmm. Richard, I'm at the point where I think a meteorite should just hit the earth. <laughs> just wipe us out. Because if the people we put in charge lie to us on a daily basis about what they're truly doing to the planet, and you've seen, like, listeners out there, you've probably all seen the David Attenborough programme, where he goes through when he was young to now and how the world's changed and then, you know, forecasting how the world would look if we don't change our current trajectory of emissions. Just wipe us out. The thing is, is it does sound bleak, but there, there are changes that are going ahead. But this, the reason why I bring this up is because this scenario is why there's such a push at national level for us to go more towards a vegetarian or vegan diet because it looks better for the emissions numbers, right? Because it's less effectively if you push more people in that direction you have less meat consumption and therefore you have a lower emissions number which looks good at the top line however there are genuine reasons why things are moving forward and improving what they're doing is they're now focusing in on general issues that are there right we're all aware that climate change is a real thing unless you're some crazy person who doesn't but most people are aware there's a climate change issue most people are aware there are there are social issues that need to be reformed Let's not get too deep. Let's stick to environmental. Don't even go into social. Okay. So we're aware of these problems, right? The politicians are aware that something needs to be done at some level, right? 
it's not enough just to talk about this from a national level you need to talk about this from an international level and you actually have to get people on board globally and we have to start looking at things globally what is also pretty clear is that what we're currently doing is we're cutting down on our meat consumption so some bloke like jeff bezos can fly a spaceship to space because his emissions for his space program have to be accounted for just as our consumption of beef has to be accounted for your statement confuses me because on one hand you said to me that they are making genuine moves but they're not making genuine moves they're just messing up the earth in a different way if you're saying something like soy you have to cut down rainforests which get rid of co2 you lose one percent of the rainforest a year for soy you're losing rainforest which we need more of to put something in the ground which strips the ground of nutrients, meaning you can't put anything else in it unless you redo the nutrients. There's not many things you can actually talk about that you'd put in the ground that actually do that, that totally strip the earth of most of the nutrients and you can't plant anything else. It just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. But this is why I'm saying things will get better because by looking at these problems, by focusing in on the wider environmental impact, what happens is, is people start to study this properly and realise that the plan they've put into place isn't a workable plan. It's not feasible. And then it doesn't take long for people to realise that actually, why are we cutting out foods that we've eaten for 200, 300 years with no problems? We've had cows for I don't know how long, but it's a few thousand years, right? Cows have existed. And there was never a, an environmental issue from them before. We've messed up the cows or we've messed up the system to create the environmental impact. Therefore, the solution has to be to go back to basics. But what you're saying isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen because the people in place won't allow it to happen. If what you're saying is true, it would have already happened. How are you going to have the barefaced cheek to hold the G20, make it out like you're a leader in something, when all you're doing is sneaking behind the back door? The, pro- the problem to be... To be fair to the politicians and... Whoa, whoa, you might be out of this podcast and never come back after this <laughs> statement. You need to be careful what you say right now. All evidence is against whatever statement you say right now. I feel like you're heading or your statement is going to be in a different direction to everything you've just told me. What I was going to say is to be fair to the politicians, I don't think they've looked into it as far as I did because I spent about four hours last week looking at this properly in depth. I don't think they've done that. I think they've just been told that they're reducing it from, from these things. Um, so sorry. I've had this conversation with so many people and not in terms of just these numbers, but just in general. They're meant to be the smartest people in the country. No, they're not. They're just elected officials. They're not, they're not the smartest people. They're just, they're individuals and they're flawed. And I'm, I'm, I'm with you because I think that they, the whole political system needs to be reviewed. This is a separate discussion, but the way, the way we do things is too short term because you're only elected for five years. You only think about that five year window because after that five years, Whatever you've put in place, if it's successful in the next term and you're not in power, the other lot get the credit. So therefore, you don't put anything in place that's over five years in length. So what is the point of having them if they're only running things for five years? You're right. But if the politicians and they don't have common sense, which is something you'd think they would have, what's the point of having even, even having a politicians? What's the point? If me and you can figure out that it doesn't make sense and what they're saying and what they're doing are two different things... They must know that. They're not stupid. But for some political or monetary gain, they're not doing what needs to be done and they're just lying about it. That's, ultimately, that's what it comes down to because there's no way you can tell me someone is that stupid to not know what they're doing. Ultimately, the system is flawed because who enters politics? 
you either get people who are idealists who want to do one thing or make a change about one or two things, or you get people who want power. You don't really get anyone else. So you've already got people who are walking in corrupt or walking in with one or two things they want to sort out and they're obsessed by. And anyone who gets in for the idealist reasons ends up at some lower to middle end level as an MP where they campaign really strongly on the environment or, the, or women's issues and they're largely sidelined because they have an in-depth knowledge of one area but not a broad knowledge. They don't know what's going on in, say, Syria or what's happening in terms of workers' rights because they're too focused in, on, in this case, envi- the environment. So, And then the other lot are only really interested in power and position. So they're going to do whatever it takes to maintain power and position. The, that's the fundamental problem is these people, this is why I say these people are not that smart. These people are just really into it for a couple of things. It's at the point where it's beyond laughable and the future that we're now creating for two to three generations down the line. Morally, can you even feel comfortable about that? Well, the only thing you can do realistically is put pressure on them to look at things properly, which means that you have to go and engage with them and because the thing that they will want to do is get re-elected, right? That's the one power you have over them is they want to get re-elected. So you'd need to campaign constantly at them about issues that you actually want to get solved. And you have to see a weight of public opinion move in your favour. But no, not really, because all you need to, all they need to do is promise if they get re-elected to do it. Once they get re-elected, they're actually under no legal obligation to do it. I know, but eventually that will catch up on them because if they can't fulfil the no. promises, people will push them out. They won't because they've got another five years. Yeah, but you have five years before you get rid of them. You've got to think about it. I know what you're saying, but it's, it's still another five years and people's memory is so short and fickle, they'll forget. This is unfortunately the reality of the situation, though. Is- I, think this should, I think it should be changed where you have a mandate and then you have part of that mandate is a legal mandate. 40% of their mandate is legally binding. And if it's not done within the first year or first year and a half of them being in power, then there has to be a re-election or even 20%. I know you've got that thing whereby you can say you want to do something. However, if the other party doesn't side with you, you can't do it. Yeah, I think it needs to be... So you can't get get the the documents or the papers through. Yeah, if it's realistically deliverable, then then you can put it in place. You'd have to... I think what you'd have to do is specify which part of your election manifesto is... Yeah, legally binding. Is legally yeah. binding. But then but then you say, we're going to put this in place. And then that needs to be a realistically deliverable thing. And that's basically going to have to be the basis of, of your of your election promise. The, the other thing is, as well, is I think there needs to be um, long, long-term thinking that's put in place. You need to have something that you've, you've put in place that you're going to say, right, this is a long-term thing and it needs to be protected from... The next party touching it so it needs to be like a cross-party agreement it doesn't have to be a cross-party agreement it has to be a legal document like now they put in place the um is it the higher tax for nhs and social care uh the ni yeah that's legal so the problem is now that's legally binding which means it probably won't come back out no because it's like the the vat when they moved the vat rate up they never took it back down again no one's taking it back down again if it's done like that, then it will last. And with certain environmental things, I can't see any reason why someone would even want to take it out. No, and I think everyone agrees that the environment's important and everyone agrees that we need to do something about it. I think we just have to take it out of the hands of short-termist thinking and go, right, this is a long-term problem. It requires a long-term solution. So this is what we should be doing about it. It's messed up that we've reached the point where importing beef 
is better for our numbers and therefore we're in, we're encouraging people to use beef and soy rather than using our own domestic beef if we've reached that point someone needs to be going this is not right what's that going to mean for the workforce and farmers well, less money more farmers in poverty like it's just geez, they're really trying to mess up our country the conservatives they've been in power for way too long so in conclusion eat beef not soy it's better for the environment Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.